0: This is one reason why we've written these books and this recent one, Counterfeit Kingdom, so that people know how language is being used and how subtly uh, it can seem like it's true when it's not or biblical when it is a departure from Scripture.
1: Welcome everyone to Reclamation Podcast, a Be Emboldened initiative. If you are new to us, I am Naomi, the director and founder of Be Emboldened, and we exist for those impacted by religious trauma. We provide support for the prevention of victimization and re-victimization, creating a safe place to ask questions and to heal. You can learn more about the resources and support services we offer by visiting beemboldened.com. This episode is sponsored by White Haven Coffee Roasters. They are a small batch specialty coffee roaster focused on connecting with people over an exceptional cup of coffee. Their beans are ethically and sustainably sourced, which is something I personally really value in those we partner with to ensure that every person in the system is treated in accordance with the value they have while stewarding the earth and its resources well. You can go to whitehavenroasters.com, type live free into the note box at checkout and be emboldened. and we'll get 15% back um, as a donation on your order. Today we are talking about the New Apostolic Reformation, which you'll also hear us refer to this as NAR um, for short, because that's a bit of a mouthful. If this doesn't sound familiar to you, please keep listening, because it's probably going to sound familiar um, as we get into some of the signs of this movement. You're probably going to find that you've had some overlap with it. Joining us for this really important conversation are Holly Pivick and Doug Guyvitt. Holly is a blogger, an author, and a speaker, as well as a pastor's wife and homeschooling mama. She has a master's in apologetics from Biola University, where she has also served as a university editor for almost a decade. She has co-authored multiple books on the new apostolic reformation, including the newest that we're talking about today, which she co-authored with Doug, Counterfeit Kingdom, The Dangers of New Revelation, New Prophets, and New Age Practices in the Church. Doug is a husband he's a father to two grown children professor author and speaker Doug I love the order in which you put that you've got like your priorities (laughs) in order (laughs) he has a PhD in philosophy from USC and teaches at Biola University and Talbot School of Theology he has written or edited several books and spoken on the new apostolic reformation related issues as well as Christian apologetics and the Christian life to audiences all over the world. So with that, welcome and thank you all so much for being here. Thanks so much for having us.
0: Thank you Naomi.
1: Absolutely. So I want to give a little bit of an intro for every the two of you, our audience, you know, everyone who's listening. I want to give some background on how this interview came to be. So, for anyone who's new to me, You may not know that I was raised in what I would refer to as a pseudo-Christian cult or a cult of Christianity. Um, For those who do know that, you may not know a whole lot about the details of it, but the New Apostolic Reformation and what I grew up in, they have a lot in common. And so we're going to cover some of that today in a way that is relevant to you. But to give a little background, my dad founded this cult pretty, it, it was a pretty severe splinter off of William Brenham. Um, which is someone that Holly and Doug the two of you reference in your book at least a couple of times um, because of how he started way back in the 40s and 50s with this situation that continued reach of what was in the latter rain movement in the 40s and 50s is horrifying in my words um, it's continued to grow and kind of filter its way, get its tentacles into a lot of different situations. I've lived the devastation of this firsthand, and I continue to meet others through be emboldened services who have similarly suffered the harm from this. So there's a lot of confusion that I hear from people about God, about angels and demons, about spiritual gifts, in particular prophecies and healings, and fundamental practices of the faith, like prayer. So it seems like most everything is touched or tainted in some way and needs to be relearned. So that's kind of like the background of where I want to start from. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was reading your book. And as I mentioned to you before we pressed record, I was reading your book and was feeling increasingly heated (laughs) as I'm reading it. So I'm like, gosh, just what's been done and what continues to be done. And to see the longevity of this, and it just keeps going and it keeps growing. And yes, we've got a counter movement now, which I'm excited to bring into this as well. But I want to give people a little bit of a history lesson onto this mo- about this movement itself. So to start us off well, going back to the roots of the new apostolic reformation, would you please share an overview of the latter rain movement and how those two intersect?
2: sure yeah as you mentioned the latter rain movement uh in the 1940s 1950s so really the post uh, world war ii era um it it was a movement that um there was revival in canada and and it really spread though throughout the united states and and even throughout the world um and um a key teaching was fivefold ministry that that God had intended for there to be five governing offices for the church through all the all the centuries. So apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. But apostles and prophets were really the ones that um, that they taught that had been really really important offices. They were the highest offices in church government because they bring critical new revelation that all Christians need. And they, they said that these offices were missing and needed to be restored. So the Lateran movement was a restorationist movement um, seeking to restore these, these offices that had supposedly been lost and, and needed to be restored uh, for, the, for the church to fulfill God's will on earth, bring God's kingdom. And um, part of Day doctrine even was a really extreme set of teachings that were associated with manifest sons of God teaching that believers, uh, by receiving these new revelations from the apostles and prophets, can actually even uh, obtain like a degree of immortality in this life. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, William Branham was, as you mentioned, one of the the leaders in this movement, and he is still highly revered today by many. Um, New Apostolic Reformation leaders uh, such as Bill Johnson and and you know at Bethel Church in Reading California which is now the most influential church today in the New Apostolic Reformation movement, but the connection is the New Apostolic Reformation movement has ta- essentially taken these Latter Rain teachings, uh, which were condemned by the Assemblies of God, and you know back in back in the original latter rain movement when these teaching surfaces surfaced, they were quickly condemned the assemblies of god put out a, a position paper and it it kind of forced the movement to go underground and um and then what happened was in the 1980s prophets started resurfacing in, in independent charismatic churches in the 1990s apostles started resurfacing and by 2001 you had so many of these churches that were embracing apostles and prophets in their governmental structure that uh, C. Peter Wagner declared that 2001 was the beginning of the second apostolic age, and and he's uh, one of the most uh, well-known apostles, of course, in this movement who who has since passed away. But um, so NAR took these Latterine teachings, and and essentially they are Latterine teachings that have just been rehashed in the New Apostolic Reformation movement, and and really has popularized these teachings. So whereas the Latterine movement was really um, Forced underground, many people thought it kind of fizzled out after the Assemblies of God issued issued that paper. Although you you can attest for yourself that it didn't go mm-hmm. away, you know. Yeah. I'm told a little bit it kind of was forced underground. Um, but NAR has taken those teachings and then popularized them and really spread them on a global s- scale, and they've received widespread acceptance. So that's a difference. Whereas as early the the Latter Rain teachings did not receive that widespread acceptance
1: it's so interesting because my dad would have started. He probably would have started. I mean, gosh, I think it was maybe the seventies. So it would have been during that underground phase then. Right. Which, which is definitely what I experienced. I mean, very under the radar duplicitous Mm -hmm. life. Like this is who I am in public school and this is who I am at home and things were very much separated out. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he passed away in 2007 and it's it's just interesting um, for me to reflect on how how that really lived out in my life, and wondering those who are still a part of it because that group isn't gone. I'm just not a part of it anymore. I wonder how this shift in culture and how out loud NAR is. This movement is now. I wonder if that's impacting at all. You know, I could see that feeling like affirmation of something they've been doing for a long time. I could see that being affirming. Oh yeah, you know, other people are catching on now Um, and just really furthering the problems, honestly.
2: Yeah, and the leaders in NAR are very open that um, of the connection between the current NAR movement and the latter rain movement. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they will... Um, disavowed what they call the more extreme teachings, like the manifest sons of God doctrines, things like that. Although uh, those manifest sons of God doctrines uh, do surface and show up even in in some of today's NAR teachings.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: About- One thing that's different is that in, in NAR, uh, the, all of this is, is wedded to this idea that there are apostles and prophets today who have extreme authority within the church. And that's a crucial component to this. That I think has helped and also just um, some of the other activities and beliefs about being able to activate people in the miraculous and seeing signs and wonders as evidence of the uh, presence of the kingdom of God on on earth. Mm -hmm. So there are some similarities and some things that are carried over and then some of these add-ons as well that make it somewhat distinctive.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: as a movement, uh, the, the new
2: language there's kind of new language new like mm-hmm. bringing heaven to earth is a very popular mm-hmm. term popularized probably by bethel church and reading it's the idea of bringing god's physical kingdom to earth mm-hmm. um so that language is kind of new language to talk about kind of the same old latter teachings
1: right right so just sort of repackaged mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, to give listeners and viewers a footing in case they are unfamiliar familiar um, again with the terminology, would you share what the distinctions are for the new apostolic reformation? The, the core
2: distinction is the teaching that apostles and prophets are supposed to govern the church. So mm-hmm. that's what sets NAR apart from any other group, even from Pentecostals and Charismatics. Historically Pentecostals and Charismatics would believe that, um, there are miraculous gifts for today, such as speaking in tongues, healing, prophesying.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, they might even talk about apostles and they do talk about apostles and prophets. So they they would say there are people with the gift of prophecy, for example, or there might be apostles in the sense of like missionaries and church planners mm-hmm. um who you know maybe also Um, have it have some some of these miraculous gifts and things like that but they wouldn't say Pentecostals and Charismatics wouldn't have said that apostles and prophets must govern the church and so that's the key difference is is that apostles and prophets and are supposed to hold the highest offices in church government all others Christians including pastors and elders are supposed to submit to them or they'll say align with them and come under their authority because they have these critical new revelations that all Christians need to learn to work, uh, to, to gain supernatural powers, to work greater, even greater miracles than Jesus worked, Mm -hmm. uh, and to bring God's kingdom to earth. And so there are other distinctive teachings that are associated with, with that. Uh, For example, the idea that miraculous gifts can be activated in every individual who desires them. So every per, every Christian can learn to prophesy. Every Christian can learn to work miracles. Every Christian can learn to raise the dead. Um, by taking part in like their supernatural schools of ministry and their their prophetic activation exercises and things like that. Um, another distinctive teaching is that it is always God's will to heal. There are no exceptions, and um, and of course the idea of bringing heaven to earth, you know, is, is a distinctive teaching as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I think you maybe indirectly just touched on this a little bit, but what do you think is the appeal? What is the appeal of the NAR movement for
0: people? What what attracts people to the movement? Mm -hmm. Well, the prospects of being uh, able to experience intimacy with God in the way that it is presented Mm -hmm. uh, in the movement. Uh, Also, the prospects of being activated in the miraculous and being able to be prophetic yourself and have that kind of ministry, uh, to be able to uh, have a healing ministry of your own. Uh, So there's the attraction of the spiritual power. Mm -hmm. Uh, People uh, believe uh, it's exciting to be a part of something that you think is alive and a a realization of the active work of the Spirit of God in the church today. Uh, By comparison, people will sometimes say that most churches just seem dead and inactive and and dysfunctional and unexciting, unexciting, boring. Mm -hmm. So... This is uh, there's a mythology uh, surrounding many of the higher profile ministries and churches like Bethel Church and Reading uh, about the miraculous. And it's overrated and it's overstated, but it's still part of the perception of people. And they're drawn to that. And um, and there I think it uh, has bred a, a sense of dissatisfaction with the way many people normally experience their Christian lives, either as individuals or in community with other believers. Right. They're probably and, applying some of the wrong standards for evaluating a work of God.
2: And people are promised that if they come under the spiritual covering of the apostles and prophets, would really come under their authority, they're promised blessings that... Um, That, like Doug said, miraculous power, you know, really help prosperity. The prosperity gospel uh, comes in here um, because they see the prosperity gospel teachings as truths that were known by the early Christians and were lost and have been restored uh, under present-day apostles and prophets. So those come into play. So really, if they want to defeat demonic strongholds in their life, if they want to fulfill their destiny, all of these things, they must come under the spiritual covering of apostles or prophets And if they leave that covering, they're in danger, spiritual danger of losing out on the blessings and the spiritual protection that come from being under, under that covering. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I have, uh, again, gosh, it's just everything that you talk about in your book. Just, I've experienced it in some way. Um, personally, as well as again, gosh, it just comes up over and over again, again, it just, I'm concerned As I know the two of you are, and that's why you're writing about it and talking about it, that this is so sneaky and it's not really, it's just not this overt recognizable thing until you're educated on it Mm -hmm. because there are spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. Okay. But what do they look like? How are we, how are we practicing discernment? And we're going to get to to more of these, but what I really appreciate about your book is that you bring the truth into it. It's not just a report of, okay, these are the problems and this is what's gone wrong. You really give firm biblical rooting of, okay, here's really what's true though. So you need to be able to compare the two so -hmm. you can catch the counterfeit. That of course is incredibly, incredibly important for people to pay attention to because this is slippery This is a very slippery slope and it's incredibly appealing. There is, I mean, if you're going to tell someone, gosh, you're going to get to heal people, you're going to experience healing, you're going to get to heal people. There's going to be prophesying, there's going to be all this, you know, spiritual, quote unquote, movement going on in the body, or you can sit at home and you can read your Bible every morning and do these spiritual practice. You're going to attend church and you're, you know, it's just, it is not, it's not as exciting. (laughs) You guys, like, Especially if we're talking about, and this, you know, this is my perception, but I'm curious if the two of you have seen the same, especially if we're talking about young adults and if we're talking about new Christians and I would say potentially new Christians at any age because it's just new. And so they don't really, they don't have a sense of spiritual maturity yet. And so I would see probably potentially an increased risk there, but yeah, it's just, it's something that, um, it's well hidden, I think. So With that, people can just assume that if they're being told, okay, this phenomena is happening and God's doing it, then they'll just, just, okay, that's what I'm being told. I trust my leadership. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to believe that this is from God, or maybe this even is, you know, this is God actually moving here right now. And so what helpful words would you have for somebody in regards to practicing discernment in their own walk with the Lord, as they're coming into these situations, how can they start to navigate what, what's really going on if it's God or if it's not? Well, one
2: thing is people need to be aware that there are warnings throughout all of scripture uh, about the the need to be discerning and the importance of being discerning and um, the threat of counterfeits. Uh, and so for example, in second Corinthians eleven fourteen. Uh, the Apostle Paul warns about false apostles who uh, were disguise- who were who were disguising themselves as apostles of Christ as true apostles, and he in that context he warns that Satan himself even will appear as an angel of light. Jesus himself warned us in Matthew seven uh, that there would be false uh, prophets and they would come in sheep's clothing. They would be wolves, but they would come in sheep's clothing. Um, and in First Thessalonians five twenty one, we are warned in the context of talking about prophecies. We're warned to test all things, and it's just throughout Scripture these warnings about the dangers of false apostles, false prophets, false teachers, mm-hmm. um, and and the need to test all things. So, so I think those passages of Scripture um, often get and those warnings often get overlooked. Hmm.
1: Yeah. And when we talk about testing or we talk about discernment for those who are newer, you know, like, gosh, I really don't know what that means. Would you are you able to give kind of a quick definition? How does someone discern? How does someone test?
0: Well, discernment is a matter of uh, determining the difference between what is true and what is false, what is spiritually healthy and what is spiritually risky. And so the question is, how do you tell what is your truth detector? And uh, the primary source of truth, of course, in this whole area is scripture. So you want to have as deep of a knowledge of scripture as you possibly can. And you might think, well, that's not that exciting. But yes, it's crucial that we inform ourselves and educate ourselves about the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and uh, all, both the Old and New Testaments. Because so much of what is taught in the New Apostolic Reformation uh, will appeal to verses out of context from some remote parts of Scripture that people are less familiar with. So it's good to have a grasp of Scripture and to be daily, if possible, mm-hmm. uh, soaking your mind in the, in the truth of God and also sitting under some really good teaching. You know, God has gifted teachers in the church to help to open the Scriptures up and, and help make sense of them and apply them to our lives. And so you want to uh, find good teachers uh, and especially link yourself up with a healthy fellowship, a, a church where there is good leadership and good preaching mm-hmm. and corporate worship and fellowship with other believers. And that's the context in which uh, you're able, better able to be discerning between what is true and what is not. You know, Jesus said in, in one of the warnings that Holly alluded to from Matthew uh, 7, also chapter 24, verse 24 that uh, these, uh, these false prophets and false Christ, the apostles that are uh, referred to by Paul, they can be very subtle and very convincing, and they can sound very biblical even. Uh, they might even quote scripture as, mm-hmm. uh, as the devil did when he tempted Jesus uh, in the wilderness. And uh, Jesus warned that uh, it, it's such a threat and so subtle that even the elect might be uh, deceived by this. Right. That That is something that we have to be aware of. And so uh, we can't be too careful. So one of the first lessons is uh, to rely on Scripture and to be part of a healthy fellowship. But another important principle here is that you don't just believe people when they tell you things. And uh, so if a person claims to be an apostle or a prophet and begins to prophesy and uh, demonstrate this kind of leadership, uh, don't just take their word for it, but, but seek out evidence. You need to ask a couple of questions. One question is, well, how, how am I supposed to know that you're the real deal here? You're a genuine apostle. Mm-hmm. What are your credentials? Uh, what criteria are uh, we to use in determining whether somebody has that kind of authority or not? And the same goes for profits as well. So we want to put them to the test. And to do that, you have to ask them to put up the evidence that supports their claim and not just assert this. But, you know, we have a tendency to just believe people, especially if we respect them, if they have a leadership position and a huge following. And it sounds like they're they believe in the authority of Scripture, and uh, they're very nice people. They may seem compassionate and genuine and loving. And you think, well, why wouldn't I just take their word for it? But you mm-hmm. cannot do that. Jesus' uh, uh, warning gives, puts us in mind of the need to be very discerning about this and not just let those things uh, speak for themselves. Our feelings about another person— are not an indicator of their reliability or their authority. Our feelings are not evidence for most of the things that we believe. They can be evidence for the level of excitement we have, but not for the truth of our convictions. And so uh, those are some basic ideas, some basic things that we need to do. But you also wanna educate yourself about the movement. This is one reason why we've written these books and this recent one, Counterfeit Kingdom, so that people know how language is being used and how subtly uh, it can seem like it's true when it's not or biblical when it is a departure from scripture. And so you want to do what you can to get educated about the movement itself, what these mm-hmm. people are teaching and so forth and expect them to come across as uh, people um, who have authority and are compassionate and loving and caring and humble and, uh, and uh, want to seem like they're mainstream or part of the charismatic movement when in fact they're not. Mm.
1: Those are very helpful tools. Thank you so much. In your book, you shared examples of interactions with supposed angels as told by members of NAR. Would you mind recapping one of these? And then how does this compare to what we should expect to be the response of someone who's recognizing the presence of an angel of God. Like what's our comparison point? Yeah.
2: Well, just a, a couple quick ones that come to mind is when uh, the story we tell about how Benny Johnson, Bill Johnson's late wife mm. would w- try to wake up sleeping angels. And she's, she shares a story that we share in the book about a, a BSSM a Bethel school of supernatural ministry student who went to Wales to Mariah chapel and believed that she encountered a sleeping angel there and that um she needed to wake up that angel and that these angels are sleeping supposedly because uh the church hasn't been calling out for a revival and so they need to be w- woken up um we also talked though about brian simmons he's uh, a nar apostle who's who produced the passion translation of the bible which is essentially a, a nar translation of the bible that smuggles in Nar teachings and practices and it's becoming very popular and he talks about an angel named Passion, who he said is with him in his ministry and his translation work and that, who he actually named the Passion Translation after. So um, those are a couple of, of examples. But, you know, as I mentioned um, earlier about in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, the Apostle Paul warned about singing him, you know, Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. So, someone you know can't if they feel like they're having these encounters with angels or experiences with angels, or or even they're in are courses and classes teaching people how to encounter their angels and and seek out encounters. Um, people need to be aware that that um, you know uh, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and. And that uh, there, there's also the demonic out there. And so so people need to be very careful uh, in, in seeking these interactions with angels.
1: Yeah, and it's always stood out to me when I hear a story from someone who says, okay, I saw an angel, there was an interaction with an angel, or sometimes Jesus. You know, I've heard that too, and... They're just kind of hanging out. And I'm like, that is not what we see happening in scripture. People are falling to their faces and they're not even looking up without permission. And so the response isn't making sense to me. I'm like that, that alone I see as a flag of like, hold on, you know, what, what are you maybe really seeing what's actually going on here? Maybe we should talk about that further. Cause that's, that just doesn't match.
0: Yeah. And then the angels bring their, their messengers, right? The word. Mm-hmm angel comes from the greek word angelos which means messenger and so they are supposed to be reporting truths uh, and providing revelation about specific circumstances or guidance or things to come and uh, we have to be just as wary of reports from so-called angels or alleged angels uh, as we would be from uh, people who uh, claim to be prophets Uh, what what are the credentials? How do you know that this person is an emissary Mm -hmm. of God himself and bringing a genuine message that God intends to reveal? I would say that quite often these messages are trivial messages. They're messages with very little substance, and, uh, and yet so much weight is placed on their authority and their importance, and people want more of it, And uh, that is, uh, to me, a striking thing, that there is this appetite for the experience, even though the content of the message that is relayed, allegedly relayed, relayed, um, it may be very thin. There may not be much there at all that you could really sink yourself, your, your teeth into. And it wouldn't provide much in the way of specific guidance for your life. Mm-hmm. And then alternatively, if you get messages that are filled with specific information that you're supposed to act on and, you sh- and it's direct guidance about something, in a way that's even more dangerous, right? Because now you're, you're running the risk of actually doing something. And taking chances with your life based on a a revelation through an angel that may not be a legitimate angelic uh, representative of God Himself.
1: Yeah, and those can turn into heartbreaking stories hmm. where people have made big decisions in their lives based on something that was untrue, and they look back, and when they can see that, it's it's just it's a painful realization. And God is incredible and faithful and there's, there's redemption in those stories, but there's a lot of pain that needn't be there, which is just, yeah, it's hard. So sticking with angels and demons, I continue to hear references to issues of the heart being attributed to demonic presences, which is something that I find really interesting. Um, That's kind of a newer thing for me. I didn't come across that a lot myself growing up. Spirit of Jezebel, I heard all the women had that. Um, but outside of that, you know, you gave an example in your book about racism. So there was a spirit of racism that could simply be cast out, you know, supposedly in this example. And when I read them, like, I just see this as a as a cop out, you know, this blaming of another being for our own areas in need of repentance and change. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are around this.
0: Yeah, well, there are various things uh, that go on there with the spirit of racism. That's a reference to a general casting out of the spirit that is responsible for fostering racism in the church or outside the church even. And uh, there's a presumption here. It's very presumptuous uh, mm-hmm. you know, to say that you can uh, identify some sociological phenomenon where there is a uh, Abuse in the world or evil in the world, and it's manifest in various ways. Racism would be one of them. And you, you presume that just by declaring uh, some statement uh, about racism be gone, uh, mm-hmm. you, you can erase it from uh, human experience. And that's just not how it works. Uh, deeply embedded sociological problems, problems in community with other people. Uh, are are not e- eliminated in this way, and we don't even see this uh, illustrated at all in Scripture. Uh, there's no New Testament uh, example of this or parallel for this. So, for a prophet or an apostle to say, "You know, I'm going to cast out the spirit of racism, and it will be gone from our presence," mm-hmm. uh, is utterly presumptuous and without biblical precedent, and also. Uh, it doesn't. It, it doesn't account for the responsibility that individuals have. So you're right, I think Naomi, that uh, it doesn't. Uh, people aren't held responsible, but you can't repent, really, on behalf of other people who are the cause of these problems. So uh, that's something that has to be treated on an individual level and in various other mm-hmm. ways. So that's a problem. Now there are other. <clears throat> you know, other ways that they believe that demonic spirits play a role and they can be active in the life of an individual. And I don't deny that uh, demonization does happen in the lives of individuals. And I I think that even believers can be oppressed in ways, but we're we're always held responsible. Uh, Usually we've given place for this in our lives in some fashion, and we need to take responsibility for that and own it and repent of that and seek God's forgiveness just like we would any other sin in our lives, and it's just too convenient to think that a besetting sin or a problem that just just hangs around for so long, whether it's part of our community or my individual problem, it's so easy to place responsibility on an outside force and say, "Well, I'm oppressed. I'm I'm being uh, plagued by demonic influence here, and uh, and and I need to." Uh, be rescued from this because there's nothing I can do about it. Also, I think that there's great danger in directly addressing the demonic world. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a bold thing to do. And also something that we have very little to go on from scripture. So I think that we, we can deal with the demonic uh, through dependence on God and just Mm -hmm. asking him for his protection and asking for Jesus to be present. And if we're uncertain about whether uh, we're being, we're under attack, a demonic attack. We can just say so, and we can say, God, you know, I don't know what's going on here. I want to take responsibility for my sin, and I want to repent of that, and I want to take steps to to uh, <clears throat> act differently going forward. But also, I would l- welcome your power and your support in all of this, mm-hmm. including any help any rescue from demonic influence if that happens to be going on. But none of that requires you to directly address the demonic spirits themselves and seek to cast them out with some special authority that you think you may have. Mm
1: -hmm. I do see people who, say, for example, have come out of Bethel's school, where they're not a part of the New Apostolic Reformation anymore, but they're relearning. And through that process, they're like, gosh, like I am oppressed in some way. You know, I, I do feel something or see something mm-hmm. or I hear, you know, there's something going on. And I know where that came from because I know where it was welcomed, um, not necessarily intentionally or directly, but it was. And I feel that way about my own experience. My family never said demonic activity is welcome here, but we were in a cult, and so it was welcome there. It's just a natural, you know, consequence of, of the situation. And so I've seen people where they come out and it's not, it's not just magically all better, just mm-hmm. like our theology isn't magically all better. And we aren't, you know, our hearts aren't magically all better and we're healed. And so there's this progression that's continuing to learn about the Lord and lean into him, focus our eyes on him, renew our minds, right. And move forward from there. And I have found in my own journey, and I've heard in others that those powers just start to weaken as we are then strengthened. Mm. Mm. so
0: yeah and uh, and jesus taught you know in in his own praying uh to the father we see in john chapter 17 for example how the word of god played a role in his prayer life and in his Mm. uh interactions with uh the devil and in his interactions with uh, people uh people who believed him and also his opponents The word of God was strong in the life of Jesus and in the mind of Jesus and in the ministry of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so in John 17, he says uh, that this is the source of our sanctification. It is how we come to uh, uh, be holy and like him, because the word is a sanctifying agent in our lives. He says in verse 17, uh, sanctify these my disciples in your truth. Your word is truth. Truth is our sanctifying um, agent. It's it's what puts us in touch with reality and it gives us direction for how we can live our lives with power. Uh, the whole chapter, the longest chapter of the Bible, in fact, is Psalm one nineteen, which extols the virtues of Scripture and what intimacy, how intimacy with God is fostered through an, a, a deep acquaintance with the truths of Scripture. So we have all of that, all that we need at our disposal here. And we simply need to exploit these things, these principles and these truths in our lives.
2: Mm. I think, though, that when they the apostles, you know, they sought to cast out a spirit of racism. The story we share in the book, um, it shows the type of tremendous authority that they are claiming to have, that they have the authority to cast out a spirit of racism from the global church and and it shows the dependence that the church has on them, you know, because they're the ones they alone have this apostolic authority to to do these kind of
1: things. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And spiritual gifts in general seem to be a, a primary focus of the new apostolic mm-hmm. reformation. And I know you reference in the book this idea of getting drunk on the spirit and essentially losing self control is is how I'm seeing it. So correct me if you would phrase that differently. But what do NAR leaders teach about spiritual gifts, and what's that emphasis?
2: Well, they put a heavy emphasis on the miraculous gifts, like like prophesying, you know, healing, working of miracles, and they would say that um, these miraculous gifts could be activated. That's a buzzword in in NAR, mm-hmm. in every per, every Christian who desires them, um, and that they need to be activated. Every Christian is really uh, outside God's will if they're not seeking to activate these gifts within themselves. And so that's why, as I mentioned, they have these supernatural schools of ministry, popping churches throughout the world, uh, many utilizing curriculum from Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, where they purchase the curriculum and and pattern their schools after the whole. Uh, and for those who don't know, like thousands of people have graduated from that three-year program at Bethel over the years where students go really to learn to become miracle workers. And so, um, but so every Christian they would say can have these miraculous gifts and should have these miraculous gifts activated in themselves. And, um, this has similarity to new age teachings, like where, like, for example, the belief that every person has these latent psychic abilities that just need to be awakened. And so you can find books on Amazon and, or go online and find websites where they talk about the, that everybody can have psych, has psychic abilities, but they just need to be awakened in people. And so there's similarities to that. Um, but the Bible doesn't, even though the Bible does talk about these miraculous gifts in spiritual gifts, it doesn't teach that um, these are gifts that can be activated in every Christian. Um, And it teaches that these are gifts that are given by the Holy spirit to individuals as he alone decides. Mm -hmm. So that's a big difference.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's significant as far as spiritual gifts. I wanted to touch on prophecy specifically Because this one comes up um, quite a bit. And sometimes I hear from people are like, okay, do I have to, what even is it? You know, and that's a conversation that we'll have is, okay, what is prophecy? What is, um, what's it intended for? What's its purpose? You know, how is it actually used in scripture? But it's something where people can get really tripped up, especially as they're coming out and they're wondering, is there any room for prophecy at all, you know, do I need to completely throw everything away? And I, I usually would argue, well, no, we don't wanna throw all the gifts away altogether, you know, um, but we wanna make sure we're starting over with our, our education on what they are, how they're to be used and things like that. So a prophecy, is, prophecy is a big one that comes up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and in a variety of circles, it causes so much confusion. So how do NAR leaders teach prophecy and what are those su- common um, types of prophecies that they use? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, most people today think of prophecy in terms of predictive prophecy, as if that's that's what prophecy is, and there's nothing more or less to it than that. Uh, It's telling the future with divine authority, because it's been revealed by God. Uh, That's only a part of what prophecy means in the Hebrew prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. So in the Hebrew tradition and Hebrew uh, background, a prophet was a spokesperson for God and could utter the words of God as these were revealed to him, and then he could communicate those to, to the other. So it was as a messenger of God, and the message might be one of <clears throat> exhortation, it might be one of warning, it might simply be uh, expre- uh, guidance, it might be uh, the commands of God. It might be a new revelation that became a part of the, the Hebrew text of Scripture. Or it could be predictive, to be sure. And much of the predictive prophecy of the Hebrew tradition, of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, is messianic prophecy. It's prophecy concerning the future Messiah, the, the, the coming of the Christ, and that's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So prophecy has a much broader application in biblical terms than just being predictive. And that's something that we have to be aware of. So then when we come to the New Testament, we want to be clear about the possibility that prophecy has a broad uh, sense as well. So if it does have a predictive sense, we can't be sure that that means it doesn't have any other sense. So uh, an individual might be prophetic If uh, he is uh, teaching the truth of God in other ways, it could be, again, it could be exhortation or warning. It could be reminding people of the commands of God. Much of what the prophets did in in the Hebrew tradition was actually a reminder of things that they already knew, things that they had already heard. And uh, I believe that anybody who might be gifted with uh, the gift of prophecy may play this kind of role as well. And uh, it may be that predictive prophecy is possible as well. Certainly, if God willed, uh, he could use a prophet today to give knowledge of the future. But there are certain constraints on that. So we would need to be able to, uh, we would want to know whether to trust someone who was giving us action-guiding uh, revelation about the future before we took action. And this is where we think it's so important that a prophet have an impeccable track record of accuracy on details regarding any predictive prophecy that they give. And this is where uh, NAR prophets uh, have a uh, the, uh, a few problems because their track record is not so good after all. Okay.
2: Yeah, and so we have a, a chapter four of our book talks about prophets, nor prophets, and we talk about the different types of common predictive prophecies, predictions about the future that they make. Um, one we call fails. Those are examples of prophecies they give t- that just have proven to be flat out wrong. For example, the prophecies that covid would go away really quickly, almost as soon as it appeared or that President Trump would be elected, you know, in 2020 as dozens of NAR prophets predicted. And of course, that didn't happen. Um So in in another type of prophecy that's related to failed prophecies are what we call loophole prophecies, that there's always a reason for why the prophecy didn't happen. If it appeared to fail, it didn't really fail. There was some kind of condition that wasn't met or there's uh, it will be fulfilled. It'll just be at some point in the future. You know, there's always an explanation given. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talk about fails. We talk about fortune cookie prophecies. And those are predictions that are made that are just so vague. They almost sound like a fortune cookie. There would be no way to know if if that had ever happened or not. Um, and then we talk about a third type is fraudulent prophecies. Mm-hmm. And these are prophecies that appear to be predictive, but but really, um, for example, one type would be headline prophecies. Uh, uh, headline prophecies are a fraudulent prophecy because uh, a prophet may predict to uh, may appear to predict the future, but really they're just reading the news headlines and and saying what everybody can tell is going to happen anyways, just by reading the headlines, but making it sound as if they had received revelation from God. Um, and we talk about hot reading prophecies as as being fraudulent, and these are prophecies where a prophet may do some research ahead of time on the people in the audience and find out information about them, but then then say that as if if details about their lives that kind of thing is if god had given them that information in the moment and then they will they will use that to then make some prediction about the person's future but but they obtain those details uh fraudulent fraudulently
1: yeah and so often those have led to examples of healings that weren't actually real i know william brennan was was big and that and it's it's continued on you know through this moment where people are through this movement excuse me where people are told oh yeah like you're healed and then they go off treatment or they and they pass away so mm-hmm. this is not minor right i mean this can come through in really big life altering ways
2: and one thing that's important for people to remember is even if a prophet does make a prediction that does appear to come to pass mm-hmm. uh then from deuteronomy 13 we still know That, um, you know, if they're teaching people, leading people away from God with their teachings, then you still can't trust that they're a prophet, even if they do make a prediction or or work a miracle or something like that. Um, Because um, it says that God is actually testing people's hearts to know whether they love him with all their heart, you know. And, And so if we listen to a prophet who does, appears to do these amazing miracles or make these amazing predictions, but then they're leading us away from God, that's really a test for us, of uh, faithfulness to God.
0: Right. And they also <clears throat> will allow uh, that they could be mistaken without um, being disqualified from serving as genuine prophets. Yeah. And that's a big, that is a giant loophole. Mm-hmm. You can drive, uh, you know, a whole army through uh, a hole that big. Um, mm-hmm. Because then it's just a matter of, well, <clears throat> you can't act on it, right? If somebody says, well, any prophet who says, you know, I have sometimes been mistaken, but I'm still a legitimate, genuine prophet of God, then the next time they speak, there's this huge warning that comes with their prophecy. Mm -hmm. This may not be God. This may not be true. This may not happen. Well, then what benefit do we derive from their prophetic word? Mm -hmm. How is it going to guide our action? What should we do if we also know that it may not come about or it may not even be true <clears throat> it may not be from god a second problem is well if it's not from god then where did it come from how did you happen to get it wrong uh, and still think that you were getting it from god why would you represent this as a message from god if it was possible that you were mistaken uh, a- another problem is that it could be that it's just probab- probabilistic and uh, that doesn't mean that you have knowledge. So you could end up getting it right, but that doesn't mean that you did receive it from God. And people think, well, if a prophet predicts something is going to happen and then it does happen, then they must have been prophetic. Uh, they must have received that information from God. That doesn't follow at all. That could have just been a lucky guess on their part. Uh, it could have been, well, either Donald Trump will win win re-election or he won't in the 2020 election. And, uh, if those who predict that he will, uh, got it wrong. Uh, but if they had predicted that he would win and he had won, it wouldn't follow automatically that they had received special revelation from God about that. They could have just been coincidentally correct.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Prophecy isn't something that we're, you know, like taking bets on, like who's going to win the next game. Or something like that. It's not. It's not what it boils down to. And I wanted to add. I have seen the loophole prophecies then lead to new revelation, mm-hmm. and then that's how the loophole is justified. Is oh, we have this new revelation. We didn't necessarily. Oh, we didn't really understand what they meant, and now we can see that. And so now we have this new, ref, you know, revelation that's going to keep it alive. And I've seen that keeps keep cults alive well past their expiration date. Um, very true in my own story. When my dad wasn't supposed to be able to die, he died. That's a
0: problem. <laughs> and
1: so, what do we do with that? Okay, well, he had dreams before he died, and now those were reinterpreted. Do mm-hmm. it make sense and to keep it going? Yeah. And uh-huh. so, yeah, new revelation. We now understand we yeah. didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear before, and now we do. So, anything can be justified. You know, we can keep it alive if we're really going to have that cognitive dissonance to just try to hold on as tightly as we can.
0: Right. Yeah. Keep it alive is a good mantra for them because uh, I've seen this too with uh, new apostles and prophets, uh, people and you know leaders in NAR uh, promise that blessings will descend upon the congregation during a particular year. Let's say it's this year or in 2023, you're going to receive all these blessings from God. And they have to tell people to expect these blessings and to think of them in terms of fairly specific things. But as they approach the end of the year, they may give God an extension on those that haven't been realized yet and say there are new conditions that you need to satisfy in order to realize mm-hmm. these uh, promises uh, before these things can happen. So we're going to see what uh you know lies in store for us in the year 2024 now and god gets an extension on the fulfillment of some of his promises late in the game because looking back people are seeing that these things have not happened
1: Mm -hmm. yeah what does nar teach about healing and what are our concerns for this
2: well, a very popular teaching in NAR that's pr- promoted by Bill Johnson at Bethel Church is that it is always God's will to heal. There are no exceptions, and um, this this is taught as a pivotal teaching. Um, beca- if you don't agree with that, then then you know this is taught that that God this is God's goodness that this shows God's goodness, and that that so for example, pastors that would teach that, well, it might not always be God's will to heal. They're actually making God out to be like a, a cosmic child abuser because what father, you know, what good father would not heal his child if he had the power to do that. And, um, and so, um, but this teaching has caused a lot of damage and a lot of destruction in lives. And we share stories in our book of, you know, people who, who thought, well, it's always God's will to heal. And I'm, I'm doing all the right things that, apostles and prophets say I'm supposed to do, but I'm, I'm not being healed of a sickness or a disease. And so it must be something I'm doing wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and even the, even the leaders of this movement, Bill Johnson, for example, has said things that make it sound as if the responsibility is on the people who aren't receiving the healing, or it it falls on the people who are, are trying, praying for their healing. And it hasn't happened. It's like, and we quote a number of these examples in the chapter on healing in our book of, of statements he's made where it's like, well, if you haven't experienced healing, if you haven't seen a miracle, you need to get get with God and, and figure out why that is. And so the blame is essentially put on the people.
1: And ultimately, someone can become so just devastated by that, that all then they just say, OK, forget God. Yeah. I, I can't be good enough. So I don't want anything to do with them anyway.
2: Yeah, it's a real concern: is disillusionment uh, with mm-hmm. with Christianity, and even the 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 chance that someone could walk away completely from their faith because of that.
0: Warren, yeah. it fosters a culture of fear and paralysis, and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, it's the dark side of all of this mythology about the excitement of mm-hmm. the miracles and so forth, because if they're not happening as expected, then you have to have an explanation for that. You can't put that on God. So what, where does the fault lie? And that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about here. So I think for many people, for a while at least, the, the, the fear that grows up within them is something that they're not even really aware of as such, until things reach kind of a boiling point and they realize I can't sustain this. This is, you know, uh, this requires so much effort to, uh, you know, and I can't think of anything I'm not doing right. I, 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 it seems like. I'm following all the right directions here, and my heart is in the right place, and I am trusting God, and I'm boldly declaring that these things are going to happen with the most faith I can muster, and if it's not happening, it's my fault. I don't know what I could possibly do differently, mm-hmm. and uh, so just imagine the burden that that places on people to be able to you know, muster enough spiritual oomph to get across the finish line. And uh, and I think that that isn't people don't realize the degree to which that is burdensome. And it's it's like a prison almost Mm -hmm. psychologically that when you get caught up in that expectation. But these things aren't promised to us, you know, and and it is appointed unto man wants to die. We will. This is a consequence of living in a fallen world. And we are. That's our future. Uh, In the intermediate term, and then there's the promise of resurrection life after that, but not of interminable life and good health um, from now on. Uh, That's certainly not the case. So we have to learn to uh, petition God with our desires and then trust him to know what's best and to achieve his perfect will and to will what he wills uh, as well.
1: Mm-hmm. we're already touching on my next question but I want to know if there's anything either of you would want to add what are the overall results we're seeing in the church from these teachings of hyper-spiritualization is there anything else we haven't touched on already that you'd want to
2: well I you know we share stories in the book of, of like a story of a couple who felt like they couldn't make any major life decisions without first consulting a prophet or the church's apostle. So decisions, whether to move, to have children, you know, these kind of things um, that, um, you know, I, we've, we've just, we've talked to a lot of people who've come out of this movement that will just share stories that um, they would feel like God didn't love them anymore. If they just went a couple nights without having a dream uh, mm-hmm. from God or feeling like they had received some kind of prophetic word, um, you know, and so people just become extremely dependent on the apostles and prophets for everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and seeking of experiences and continually having to have these experiences, uh, to keep fueling them, you know, and, in their faith. And, and, and so it, um, It really does create like an incapacitation um, among um, believers who just feel like they they can't do anything, make any decisions, you know, um, constantly seeking the experiences, that type of
1: thing.
0: I think another danger is that you use the wrong criteria for measuring growth in your life or the work of the Spirit in a church. And so evaluating a work of God is... uh, oftentimes on on the basis of the wrong criteria it might be on the basis of of miracles rather than the production of the fruit of the spirit in the lives of people or uh, knitting together of hearts and fellowship uh, growing um, more patient and having more perseverance in the face of difficulties Mm -hmm. in life and and persecution even so You know, if you have the wrong standards for evaluating a work of God and you're expecting it always to be accompanied by spectacular signs and wonders, and this just is the gospel of the kingdom, Mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, you won't find very many churches that seem to be getting it right. And yet you could be passing over uh, a church experience that uh, has all of the crucial ingredients for your own spiritual growth and and meaningful ministry,
1: mm, yeah, it can create start to create that us versus them mentality, which is classically cultish, actually. Mm-hmm. So in closing, what are some key words, phrases, flags that our listeners could tune into as they're navigating finding healthy, well-rooted communities? Because many of them are. They've already come out of something that was problematic. Now they're like, gosh, I'm trying to find something that's not, trying to find something that's sound. So what could they key into to make sure that they don't land in a new apostolic reformation influence? church?
2: I'll start off by saying the buzzwords they should look for, the teachings that are associated with Nar to, to clue them in that a church or an organization mm-hmm. might be Nar, uh terms like apostles, prophets, the adjectives apostolic or prophetic, uh, fivefold ministry. We talked about that being a core teaching in this movement. Often uh uh you'll see Ephesians 411 ministries as a term for a church that would embrace mm-hmm. uh Nar style apostles and prophets. Spiritual covering, uh, alignment, that you must align with these apostles and prophets. Um, A really popular nar revelation known as the Seven Mountain Mandate, um, seen as a strategy for uh, prophets have given for how God's kingdom can be brought to earth. Um, Sozo is a very popular inner healing. You're probably familiar with that inner healing and deliverance ministry that was popularized out of Bethel. That's something to watch out for. Supernatural schools of ministry that are promising to teach people to work miracles. Uh, the phrase bringing heaven to earth is is often a buzzword. And I want to mention a lot of these, uh, some of these buzzwords uh, can be found in the music. So, uh, NAR music, like Bethel music or music out of Jesus culture, which is a Gnar church, or music out of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri, their forerunner music label. Um, This music is laced with NAR teachings, NAR buzzwords. And once you learn the terminology, you can start to see it in the music. And this music has been used to um, really popularize this movement because so many churches do use Bethel music, even churches that are not NAR. Um, Mm -hmm. And many people have been drawn into NAR through the music. So it's very important to be aware of these buzzwords. Another buzzword is awakening. In NAR, they'll often talk about there being this kind of global spiritual awakening uh, uh, that will happen under the leadership of the apostles and prophets. And so awakening is a, is a buzzword to look out for, too. Um, so those are some decrees, of
0: them. Decrees and declarations. Declaration mm-hmm. prayer is a practice mm-hmm. it's very mm-hmm. prominent in the church. It's basically replaced petitionary prayer uh, in many NAR circles. Uh, breakthroughs, experiencing breakthroughs of one type or another, spiritual breakthrough is language that they like to use <clears throat> as well. Yeah.
1: Wonderful. And for all of our listeners and viewers, seriously, y'all go buy this book because you need it. You need to read it. You need to take notes from it and be equipped because if you haven't run into it yet, you're probably going to. And again, it's a slippery slope of something you'd really don't want to get involved with because it's it's harmful at the end of the day, because it's not actually orthodox. It's not true to who Christ is, what Christianity is, what the Bible says. So much more than we can cover in one conversation. So again, go out and buy it. And thank you both for being here. This has been great.